Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined uh, once again, and like old times, by Sarah Bay Jung of York University and Harvey Young of Boston University. Uh, Sarah, Harvey, let me apologize to you guys on the air for botching our recording time last week. Um, listeners, this is a little peek behind the curtain for you. Uh, I'm responsible for scheduling, and I had the wrong recording time on my calendar, and uh, I, I wasted everyone's time, and we had to reschedule for next week, but I, I'm chalking it up to my you know, late pandemic aphasia. <laughs> um, and Sarah Harvey were super understanding about rescheduling. Um, I can't imagine but, what um, else might have been going on. I, you know, I really, I mean, yeah. like, what excuse do you have, panel? Yeah, I, I did not beat myself up too badly about that. Um, but I hope you both are doing well. I hope you're able to transition into some summer relaxation. You know, in the U.S., um, depending on where you are, uh, people are starting to sort of come outside a little bit. There are some inklings of, of social activity returning, though I understand in Canada, it's not, you're not necessarily around the corner yet, right? Is it, um, pandemic conditions are pr- still pretty forbidding in the north is that right well they they have they are improving i mean different parts of canada canada is a very large country um <laughs> uh, uh so um th- things are happening very differently in, di- in very different um parts um but here where i am in uh, toronto and ontario things are actually they're looking up and so i think there's a certain amount of of cautious optimism so you know, hopefully we'll have a we'll end up having a, a, a good a good summer. That's 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 my hope for you as well. And, and Harvey, what's new in your neck of the woods? Uh, well, things are reopening, which means it's it's unsettling uh, depending upon where you go. So uh, I think yesterday I went to a donut shop. Yay donuts! Yay yay Dunkin' Donuts! <laughs> and and actually everyone was wearing masks. And and then I went to a brewery later that day, which gives you an insight into my diet: donuts and beer. And yeah. no one was wearing a mask. And I was like, how is this occurring in the same day? And I think we're all trying to make sense of when is it appropriate to not wear a mask, even if the sign says you do not need to wear a mask if you've been vaccinated. So we're trying to figure out that dynamic of of respect toward others as a performance, even yeah. though health protocols don't require masking in the way they did they did in the past yep yep that that is familiar to me i'm glad that your uh boston re-entry involved dunkin donuts and a brewery that's very boston very gluttony um we fear but... not the carbs in boston there you go <laughs> all, all you need is a sam adams and a boston cream donut <laughs> and it all be right in the world and a nap um well well listeners on this edition of the podcast, we've got the original co-hosts together. We're getting the band back together, and the topics will reflect that. Today on On Tap, we're talking about us. Um, we decided to do a slightly special format. Um, in our 49 episodes, we have read and discussed books, articles by dozens of authors in theater and performance studies, and we thought, why not give ourselves the On Tap treatment? So we have each chosen an article of our own authorship uh, for the other co-hosts to read and talk about. 
we'll get to that. But first, we also um, all saw This American Wife, the latest streaming offering from Fake Friends. Um, this is a live theatrical take on the real Housewives franchise of reality TV starring Michael Breslin, Patrick Foley, and Jakeem Dante Powell. Um, in association with Jeremy O'Hara. So uh, we wanted to talk about that. And then we will get to our articles, which I'm excited about. Um, before we get to those topics, uh, we wanted to do the land acknowledgement and local history dispatch. And I will do that on this episode. I'm, I'm recording in St. Louis in my office on the campus of Washington University. And this land is the ancestral land of several indigenous nations, uh, the Osage Nation, the Missouri tribe, the Miami people, and the the Illini Confederacy have all lived in this area over the years. The last time I did the land acknowledgement, I highlighted the Osage Nation. And this time I wanted to mention one of the special features of the local history, which is uh, somewhat related, and that's the Cahokia Settlement. Uh, the Cahokia Mounds are just about a half an hour away from here on the Illinois side of the river. Um, and Cahokia is a super important archaeological site and uh, uh, remnant of of, of indigenous culture and civilization. It is believed to be the largest pre-Columbian city in North America. So the largest city um, prior to um, uh, uh, Western contact in the North American continent. It was very densely populated from the 10th through the 14th centuries. Um, its population during its peak, which was thought to be around the year 1100, may have been larger than London's at that time. And if you include the local settlements of which Cahokia was the cultural hub, um, you're talking about perhaps 30 to 40,000 people total. Um, so it's a really important um, uh, local feature and something that if you're in the St. Louis area, you should definitely go and check out. And um, this is one of the, in fact, I think it's the, it's definitely the largest um, settlement of the Mississippian culture, which spanned central and southeast eastern areas of, of North America. And the Mississippians were likely the ancestors of today's Osage nation. So there's that connection as well. So we want to dive right in to talk about the latest um, live streaming offering from Fake Friends. Um, several episodes back, we talked about uh, their first uh, performance, Circle Jerk, which we all really enjoyed. This follow-up um, is somewhat similar in format, though quite a departure in terms of theme. Um, uh, Sarah, I don't know, do you want to you want to start us off and, and perhaps give listeners who didn't have a chance to see it yet um, some sense of what the show's main elements are? Well, gosh, the main elements. <laughs> um, so if you follow me on Twitter, um, I uh, shared a little bit there. I think there I called it a, a you know, a, a queer Brechtian reality TV um, uh, NPR inception, extravag inception extravaganza. And I think that for me, that really kind of covers it. It's, um, I, I find that the, the title does quite a lot of work in terms of highlighting both its gesture to uh, American popular culture's kind of obsession with, with reality, both lowbrow and highbrow in the form of the real housewives of um, various places, Atlanta, New York, Beverly Hills. 
um, as well as uh, the riff on This American Life, the more of the, you know, middle brow, high brow kind of NPR um, look into um, life lived in, in, in an American context. It is a, another form of what, of what the fake friends call live internet theater. Um, so I believe that they actually started working on this piece as a live performance show back in 2018, but it is um, revamped and reworked for um, a multi-camera live uh, stream setup. So it is performed in real time um, in a, a kind of you know brilliantly appropriate um, suburban McMansion um, with some really extraordinary camera work as we follow three uh, three characters slash actors slash performers slash individuals um, through their kind of uh, performance uh, of their obsession with the real Housewives franchise and then the layering of their own uh, subjectivity and uh, and ideas and, and um, experiences within that. So it's um, it's it's a kind of wonderful um, mashup of any number of, of really important um, wonderful gestures, some of which go to you know theater graduate school. Um, and there are certain moments that we can all recall in that as well as really open to anyone who sort of enjoys American popular culture. Um, I, I think there's any number of really exciting ways to delve into it. I think it's quite quite smart. I, I enjoyed it even more than Circle Jerk, frankly. Um, and 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 think it like dramaturgically, it's quite it's quite witty. Um, what 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 did you guys in, you know did, did did you see it? Did you tweet it? What was what was that experience for you? Panel, I think I saw you like actually live tweeting during the show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when, when we when we watched Circle Jerk, I missed out on the live experience. I watched um, you know record uh, a recording of the stream later, and we talked about it on the podcast. And you recommended you know watching live and getting on Twitter, which I did this time, and I was really glad that I did. Um, I. I, like you, I think I liked this better than Circle Jerk, but I liked Circle Jerk as well. This was more focused on a particular theme, the different, uh, I mean, Circle Jerk was as well. Like it, it's a pretty sharp parody of something very specific. Um, but this had the structure of the Real Housewives as its, you know, sort of central and indisputable object of, um, I don't know, embodiment parody, interpretation, obsession. Um, and even though I probably can count the number, the amount of time I've spent watching the Real Housewives franchise inclusive on one hand in terms of seconds, I just, I, I have only ever seen, you know, images and memes from it. I do not know the franchise at all, at all. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it nonetheless. I mean, I could, I could understand the choices of the location, which I think is a big, big, like very big, very extravagantly, extravagantly decorated house in, in Long Island, possibly, or New Jersey, one of those. Um, uh, the costumes <laughs> um, and, of course, the, the script, uh, it all made sense as a sort of understanding of an, an obsessive relationship of reality TV, with re reality TV. Um, you know, I don't want to go on too long, but I'll and I have things to say about you know the, more things to say about the overall experience, including the the Twitter Twitter interactions. But my favorite moment, the moment that I 
am still thinking about. Uh, it comes about halfway into the show, and it's a kind of round robin where there are three interviews. One cast member is holding the camera very close up on another cast member and asking them a series of questions, interviewing them. But but the lines of questioning all take very personal and um, direct uh, uh, vectors. So, you know, the, the, the character on screen, the performer on screen is being asked about, um, the time I watched it. And I don't know if it's different every time, but I bet it is, um, you know, personal, uh, sexual experience in, in detail, right. For example, or, you know, aspects of their own identity that make them very vulnerable on camera. And this was one of those great theatrical moments because I, I wanted to know, you know, it, it had the air of realness and improvisation and open-endedness. I imagined that this was something that grew out of a rehearsal exercise where the line of questions could go in any direction and surprise the person on camera. But I don't know because these are great actors and they're trained and they know what they're doing. So it could have been scripted and I wouldn't necessarily know the difference. But that to me was excellent. It, on the one hand, I think revealed something about the the hyper public intimacy that reality TV um, trades on. And I think uh, Fake Friends successfully incorporated that into their show. Um, But it also happened quite uh, uh, by chance to remind me of Sex, Lies, and Videotape, this movie from, I think it's like 1989, that was one of Steven Soderbergh's early uh, successes and that uh, my wife and I had never seen and we just happened to rent it the night before and the sort of one of the central moments in that movie and it's about videotapes and camcorders and sexuality and vulnerability is where um, James Spader's character is interviewing you know other characters women and sort of asking them to talk about their sexual preferences and their experiences and it's the same kind of um, you know electricity and sense of stakes and really um, excellent drama to watch someone act like they're being recorded talking about their lives in a very intimate and personal way. So I'll, I'll leave it there, but um, that's what, that's what I'm still thinking about and chewing on from that moment. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. What about you, Harvey? I'll hop in here. I watched the recording. Uh, which is available now for those uh, who are interested in checking this out. If you haven't seen it yet, you can uh, purchase the recording and, and 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 watch it when you'd like to watch it, as opposed to uh, you know when it's premiering live. I do feel as though the experience must be much more dynamic and involved and engaged to be part of a Twitterverse uh, of sort of people co-watching, co-experiencing this at the same time, being surprised in the same moments. So I watched it, trying to imagine what this other world might be as I was alone, <laughs> like sort of watching it on my laptop. Uh, but indeed, I think that what I found striking to pick up on what the panel was saying uh, was that moment where you go from the, the re-performance of some of the dialogue from um, uh, The Real Housewives uh, to those moments of what seems to be striking authenticity. So, so what I wrote down, I think this is the moment we're talking about, uh, even though the stories were different, uh, was th- those interviews began with uh, uh, one character saying to the other, tell me something that's yours. Uh, and it was followed by who's watching this, right? You know, and I think that there's a way in which uh, you're in really invited into these moments of testimonial, these, these moments of what appears to be realness of, of a heightened authenticity, uh, which clashes, right, with the, the layered uh, performances of these sort of reenactments. I just thought it was a, 
uh, a journey. I, I, I can't think of a better way of putting it. I, would, I, I began watching uh, This American Life uh, really quizzical and confused and, and wondering why I was watching this <laughs> and, and where it was going to go. And, and I knew it was going to be an hour and a half, and I thought it might be an hour and a half strictly of these reperformances moving around this house. And I was just prepared for that journey of, of an hour and a half of that. But then there was these moments of disruption, right, where I felt as though I saw the construction of the piece. I was able to appreciate the dramaturgy, the, you know, the, the, the story coming together. And I, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, uh, Kat Rodriguez, uh, who's a dramaturg on this, uh, you know, for actually peeling away the layers of artifice, you know, to creating these sort of strikingly real moments where you felt as though you were encountering not only pop culture at large, but also having um, a moment, you know, with each of the three actors featured here. So I enjoyed it. But I so, will admit, I didn't see Circle Jerk. I, I totally missed that one. So how were they in conversation, if at all? Well, I, so formally, they they follow a similar a similar format, right? Which is that you've got um, a, a performance setup that is inherent, you know, innately, I would say, theatrical um, in terms of its uh, stage sets, its kind of you know fourth wall framing. Um, you know, it's created by a bunch of drama school folks. Um, and I mean, you know, it, it has dramaturgs like it's it's like it's like multiple dramaturgs work on these things. Um, but but designed very much for 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 live simultaneous um, remote video cast viewing. Um, and so I think those are and, and they're both also really kind of, I think, fairly poignant social critiques. I mean, the, you know, Circle Jerk is really a critique of, of you know, right-wing um, gay white men and, and the, the kind of claiming of marginality and um, superiority um, within, you know, a, a changing cultural context. Um, and here, I would say that, that there's a similar kind of play, um, you know, very much in, in kind of invested in queer culture um, for me, I think that, I, and I think Sex, Lies, and Videotape is a really great kind of um, foundational urtext um, in some ways for the, for the format, um, particularly when, when we move towards actually foregrounding in the later parts of, um, uh, of This American Wife of the presence of cameras, and you'll see a couple of, you know, very, um, you know, for all you like film majors out there, right? Self-reflexive cinema, where we turn the camera into the mirror and sort of and or and and or face other cameras. But there's a, a kind of question of realness in that kind of drag, queer, um, underground uh, sense, um, opposite than authenticity. Um, and and I think you know, in many ways, the you know. Because again, drama school, um, they're often telling you how to watch it, right? So there's a there's a kind of offhanded reference to Brecht at the beginning of the of at the beginning of the show, that it, that essentially is telling you throughout that you're watching things that are real and not that you're watching people who are not me and not not me that you're watching things that are that are inherently de you know defamiliarized and and that you're meant to be alienated, and even kind of as you come to the end, there's one of my favorite moments. Is you've got two perform, you know, two. I, will, I have to be careful with my words here. Two people who are squaring off in opposition to each other in a green-screened garage, 
um, and are, you know, have the virtual backgrounds to which we have all now become accustomed, right, in our, in our Zoom worlds. Um, and one is insisting, like, I am a performer, don't call me an actor, I've never been an actor, I don't wanna be an actor, I'm never gonna be an actor. And the other is like, I've been nominated for Tony Awards, I am an actor, <laughs> I am classically trained, I am not being treated legitimately. And, and their kind of dichotomy and the, and the questions, right, I, I think provides a really important frame around what do we think is real? Why do we invest in it? What do we see as authentic to our experience, to the, the world around us? Um, and what I also find really interesting is that, um, I mean, there's a whole other layer in which is a profound critical takedown um, that goes back to Circle Jerk, or circles back, I should say, um, as well as to other work, but, but also it's fun reading the criticism and how often people feel the need to assert their relationship to the real housewives or not, right? To sort of position themselves as, I've never watched any <laughs> real housewives of, you know, uh, of, of Given City, but, you know, and, and, and the ways in which certain kinds of commodity performance consumption invites community and, and when, we, when we align ourselves with that or when we distance ourselves from that. And I just, I find, so I mean, for me, this kind of radiates in all kinds of really interesting, uh, uh, really interesting ways, but, but the, the realness versus authenticity, I think is one of the key, key markers for me. Yeah, absolutely, and and the the presence of that central text for commentary, which I think I think helped it helped keep the experience more focused for me than with Circle Jerk. And there's a way that the production apparatus is more handled in a more sophisticated way with this show. Not that it wasn't, you know, very impressive in Circle Jerk, but with Circle Jerk, I think they were trying out a lot of video and uh, um, editing and mixing capabilities and it was sort of on display in a conspicuous way here there's usually a single camera held by um, one of the production team and it's snaking you through this important space the the site was was different as well right the circle jerk was more like i don't know felt more like downtown east village theater theater in a small room with some basic um, sort of, you know, uh, scenery. This was about the building in a certain way. But yeah, I, I loved it. But the, you know, the online experience for me was great. Um, you know, I think I, th I saw it on a Monday night, I think. So it was, I felt like Twitter was not super active. Um, but some people were asking about, you know, is this camp or not? Um, on Twitter. And I was like, I don't think this is camp. Like there's, it's, it's pretty sophisticated. It's not, it's not operating in a, in a, you know, stable comedic tonality the way I think camp is typically, though there were elements of it. And then towards the end of the show, you know, there's the sort of moment where at least the night that I saw it, I think it was Patrick Foley is sort of doing a talk back, right? They're one of, one of the dramaturgs is, um, feeding him questions from Twitter and he's responding and he responded to my question about sex lies and videotape and other texts that they found, insp you know, inspiring. Um, and then responded to the camp question as well and was like, no, it's not camp, it's not camp. And then, as you guys will recall, he's, they sort of seamlessly transitioned out from that sort of talkback segment to um, a sort of set piece, which is a big theatrical stagey fight among the cast, which to me read exactly as camp. 
right? Um, because they were enjoy, you know, enjoying the fake sort of seriousness of it and doing a very reality TV thing where they artificially fight over something for the sake of the show. Um, but yeah. Well, I, I will say the recorded version that I watched, uh, there was a line that I uh, just jotted down in my notes uh, where so one of the performers said, you know, we will not talk on camp. People on Twitter should not be talking about camp. <laughs> you know, so, and, and I just took this as, again, in, in the imagined live world that I had to sort of invent in my head, you know, them yeah. being mindful of the threads uh, that were occurring in real time and saying, no, 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 how you're framing this is not how we're choosing to present it or how we think about the work that we're offering for you. Right. But, if, but I love the idea. Camp is too if, sacred. But of Stop course talking that presumes that. that you take that, that, that seriously and think that that was it yes. that was that was a sincere i mean it did remind me a little bit of of the met gala from a few years ago right that that was called camp um in which then invited <laughs> you know all of us to you know sort of you know dust off our susan sontag and run around pointing at things like camp <laughs> not camp camp not right. camp and and of course what i would say is uh, you know that it was it was not camp but it was also not not camp and and that oh, there's yeah. a you know yeah. a, a a lack of of sincerity in in all of it that i think we should take the that we should take their lack of sincerity very seriously is there Indeed. any idea of how many people actually watch this i'm thinking about the coverage the new york times la times and elsewhere so i imagine there must have been a massive audience well, I, I can tell you that in my stream, you could see a count. I mean, this is one of the weird sort of analogies between this type of viewing and regular theatrical viewing. You could see the audience in there being a head count um, the night that I watched it. I think the night that I watched it, I don't want to get this wrong. I feel like it was around 150 or so and stayed pretty stable throughout. But again, that was a Monday. I don't, I don't imagine its largest audience was then. And who knows about who, how many people watched the recording after. I, I don't know. We, 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 we should ask them. Um, I, I do want to just sure. uh, say a quick shout out. So that in addition to Kat, their other dramaturg was um, Ariel Siebert um, and director Rory Pelsu, who um, uh, also directed uh, Circle Jerk. And I, I say this because if you look at their bios online, um, they're they're crediting their work in theater and in, in film and video. And I really think that this is... Um, you know, we're going to look back at sort of 2020 and various forms of work that happened in this context as a real turning point in how we understand uh, theater and theatrical practice, and and I hope theater and theatrical education um, in terms of of thinking about I think you know what what Josh Abrams because I just I just reread his Atha speech from last summer in the latest issue of Theater Topics, what what he calls expanded in industry, and I think we could actually go to to Gene Youngblood's um, expanded cinema from 1970, um, which sort of uses cinema as the frame of all future digital computer influenced um, art and media technologies, but I actually think. Um, uh, and no disrespect to, to Jean Youngblood, who, who recently passed, because uh, I think it's quite an, an impressive and important book. But I actually think what we've seen in this kind of transition to the online space is expanded theater as opposed to expanded cinema. And for me, This American Wife is a great example of where that points us in any number of directions. And I think it's quite exciting. 
I do too. I, I imagine they or and or others will continue to produce in this mode. It's interesting to think about what they could do with a live audience and this these types of production mechanisms as well. You know, it's so sophisticated they're doing so much. It wouldn't surprise me if they could do parallel versions of the same show or even sort of hybrid versions of it. But um well listeners uh check out while you can um fake friends this american wife um and you can check out a, a, a stream of a recording of one of the live performances and we'll hope for more work from this very exciting um uh, producing collective soon um but i want to move on because i want to give us time for us guys. <laughs> um uh we have we have read camp i just want this i want this episode yeah <laughs> i want that, that my name is camp the podcast is camp this american wife is not 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 camp um uh so we we assigned to each other and read each other's work for this episode um we'll, we'll start it off with sarah's article we we read um an article from theater uh in 2016 entitled Unseen Performance Criticism and Digital Recordings. Very apt given our discussion of This American Wife. Um, why don't we do this? Uh, we'll, we'll ask the author to just say a couple of words introducing the project, giving a, a sort of, I don't know, narrative of its um, of its emergence and, and why they chose it for us to read. And then we'll just dive in um, and, and rip it apart <laughs> on, the, on the recording. That, that is, that is. No, that's not, that's that not is, our no, way. No, 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 that is, that is totally. Totally fair, and and um, it, you know, in a in a weird bit of um, of folding in on itself. So this would go to the inception part of. Um, I actually uh, had the chance to to sort of had this work read and, and discussed um, with some of the circle jerk folks um, or the fake friends folks. So so there's a kind of um, uh, weird intersection there. Um, I, 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 so I picked this because um, at the time that I was writing it, I was very um, aware of uh, the fact that often we were talking about, about theater as if it was only one thing. And then we were like, we were sort of a, you know, we, a kind of general academic theater critical, but we were also like kind of illicitly consuming it on the side. And, and and not acknowledging that, right? So think about how many times in our theater classes you've shown, you know, I mean, now I'll really date myself, right? Back to the good old days of like grainy VHS tapes, you know, that you, that would sort of get passed along. And, and, and with YouTube, you had, you know, the circulation of, of, of theater recordings, but we also kind of pretended that you could teach those things. Um, but then, but then we were not acknowledging that that was a kind of critical exercise, or that it that it, that it was meaningful in other contexts. So, the, so you know, it was sort of fine for the sides, but it wasn't really the thing. And and so I I wanted to write a piece, and and I and I stand by it, where that like it's not to say that looking or watching a performance uh, as, as a video recording of one kind is a is the same as seeing it live or a replacement for seeing it live. Although I would argue that that some works that are intended for this mode are actually more interesting. Um, but it was simply to acknowledge that this is something we've been doing for a long time and and how might we acknowledge what we're doing and what does that look like? And, and the sort of 
one of the kind of key jumping off places for this is that I happened to be in Seattle during Aster when I saw, I went to see Ralph Lemon's, um, um, why do you, you know, um, oh gosh, it's now escaping me. Like, why do you sit in the house and not go outside all day? Um, I'm, I think I'm badly yeah. botching that, but, um, and I saw it at, uh, at um, on the boards while it was being recorded. So, um, and so I have the, and I've done this with a few other shows where I've seen it live and I've seen it recorded. And what I will tell you is that there are different things in both. And so I wanted to make a case for the fact that like the actual performance might happen in multiple dimensions and in multiple domains and, and to kind of tease that apart. So that was sort of where the, where the impetus uh, for this came. Somebody asked me, it, it opens with an anecdote about, um, which is true, seeing a senior colleague talk about, uh, talk about a work um, and then acknowledge later that they had not actually seen it. Um, and somebody asked me like, who was it? And I will just tell you right now, I have completely forgotten. Like, I do not know. <laughs> I like, I, I mean, I suppose I could dig out my notes out of like, you know, my storage locker, but, but I really, so anyway, so your speculations are as good as mine at this point. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, well, let me let me just dive in. I really enjoyed this. Um, in a way, it's returning to the well of a topic that we've discussed many times on the podcast. It references the liveness debate, um, but this did make me. It, it brought up some really great insights. That you know, obviously, the the experience of seeing something in person, live, and with physical spatial co presence is not the same as watching it on video. But we have strange attitudes about seeing it on video. Um, but of course it's not the case that when you see something live, you have seen it in a more complete way. I feel like that's the fallacy, right? We tend to treat it as though if you have seen it live in the building, then you have had the full experience. Whereas if you've seen it in video, you've seen an income, you've had you know, a sort of incomplete experience. And that is completely wrong, right? Because as you point out, and as is intuitive when you think about it, when you're there in person, you might be quite distracted. You might have to get up and miss part of it. Um, when I saw, I think you reference, uh, you refer to Einstein on the beach. And when I saw that at BAM, you know, you sort of have to pick the moment when you're going to leave and like stretch your legs and then come Unless back. Unless you have a really solid hydration plan. <laughs> nice. Yeah, right. An excellent um, uh, bladder control. Um, uh, and also it, 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 had, it put me in mind of the fact that um, a lot of my very most formative spectating experiences of theater have been in video. I, I remember watching um, video of Julie Taymor work uh, in Jeff Prohl's theater history classes at University of Puget Sound, Go Loggers. And, um, <laughs> you know, seeing video of, of her production of Oedipus and her Fool's Fire. Fool's Fire is not even a theatrical show. That's made for video. But that her uh, capabilities as a director, as an artist, were so formative and so important to me and those were just that, that was we're literally watching things off of, v, of off of a VHS tape. So I think, you know, you're quite right. And I'm not sure you make this argument explicitly, but I think our our attitudes towards the thing you've seen live have to do. We're really just reflecting the kind of artificial scarcity or real scarcity of live theater, the difficulty and the sort of cultural cachet that comes with being able to see something important early and our desire to sort of brag about that and, and you know, uh, be proud of that, which is fine. But we tend to replace that with some sort of fuzzy argument about what is the superior or the authentic viewing experience. And I think it's we're just far past the time when we should think that. I do think, though, there's something wrong with pretending or leading to people to believe you've seen something live if you have not, right? That's still a little bit 
you, you know, you might want to acknowledge at the plenary stage, this is something I've not seen live, but I've done my research. Um, but I enjoyed it for that reason. Yeah, I totally enjoyed this article. And I, I will admit, I read it before watching uh, This American Wife. So it was really helpful as well to think about uh, the performance events that are structured for a mediated or distanced viewer. Uh, and I, I was mindful of that. And, and I think that it, it became the perfect key for me to think about you know, how do we engage with uh, you know, this, the large number, in fact, probably the majority of performances you know, that we encounter through the frame or through the lens of a camera, right? If you think about it in terms of historical performances uh, or even things that are occurring all over the place that we just have limited access to, right? Uh, or, or by design are inviting us in, such as um, uh, This American Wife. You know, so I thought that was a real contribution and, and, a, and a gift. Uh, I also thought it was helpful you know, to just underscore you know, how uh, necessary it is for us to uh, reframe how we sort of overly still privilege the live uh, and and that you know one can gain access to and and then sometimes get a better sort of perspective on on a live event you know through the mediated representation so i'm thinking about actually there's there's so many things i've seen live that i preferred watching in the recorded version of it right so i remember seeing i've, I've seen hamilton a, a few times live but none of those Perspectives have been as good as the Disney uh, filmed, distributed, distributed version of Hamilton, uh, to the point where it's like I remember I, when I first saw Hamilton, where I sat far up in the balcony to the side, I had no idea that there were actually people dancing, you know, on the second le- on the second level. <laughs> you know, I missed like a third of the entrances, and sure, I was there live, but I I missed the performance. Uh, and I didn't realize I missed the performance until I watched it from a different point of view in the theater. And then even more to the point when I watched it via the edited film presentation that was gifted to us. You know, so I think that you know, sometimes we overly privilege that sense of, 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 of being there in the room, uh, even if you can't see the entire performance. Well, I really enjoyed, for precisely that reason, that Theater Journal while while live venues have been you know mostly closed over the last year or so has invited performance criticism of uh of recorded recorded uh performances or you know or of live presentation of mediated or you know televised performances and and in fact patricia herrera's um uh review of of the disney plus you know, a uh, movie recording of Hamilton, I think is a great, is a great way to revisit, revisit that. And I, I'm right there with you, Harvey, like the final look from Eliza to Alexander, like, I, you know, I don't think you see that from 99% of the seats in the house. Like, I mean, right. she's looking mostly upstage in that, you know, depending. And so like her, her look, at that moment, you only see reflected off of his face um, and if you're in the live theater. But whereas the camera, you know, they made the choice to actually put the viewer in a totally different position. And this, for me, was also what happened with Okuyo Pakwasili in the in the Ralph Lemon piece in which, you know, there are there are like a, there's a minute or two where you you hear her, but you do not see her in the live experience. But in the video, you know exactly where she is and it completely transforms 
what that what that moment what that moment is. So I really hope that as things open up, we don't lose the, we don't lose that perspective. We don't lose the the energy and attention that we've given to theater across all different kinds of media. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll take the. Um the, the opportunity to hear to ask a question of the author, which we don't get to do on the podcast very much. But you make it you make the claim um, early on that the, the notion that performance subsists primarily in documentation, um, which you you know cite several scholars making that that sort of argument. You are you say that this is more true or maybe more true for performance art than for theater, which I thought was a curious idea. Um, and I wonder, is it? Do you think that that is because performance? as distinct from theater is sort of understood more as an event, whereas theater is still more understood as a kind of repeatable commodity or experience. I guess I was, I don't think you're wrong about it. I do wonder how we get to a point where, you know, more gallery performance or more live art or performance art is something that we're more comfortable steeping in the documentation of it, but that there's still some sort of iffy feeling about you know a video recording of a play do you have any sense about why that might be sarah well i mean one thing is like remember i was writing this in 2016 um so it was Mm -hmm. it was a the discourse was in a very different place than it is today because you had a lot of people who were attending to marina abramovich's work um Rebecca Schneider's performing remains had come out, you know, uh, uh, you know, I think five years earlier, you know, there was, there was, it was, um, there was a, you know, there was just a lot more attention. Amelia Jones perform, record, repeat, um, Amelia Jones and and Adrian Heathfield, um, uh, you know, had had sort of, so there was, there was just a lot more attention kind of on the documentation side at, at that point. And there was still, I mean, I originally delivered this in, in, I think it was 2015. Um, whenever uh, PSI Fluid States was, 2014, 2015, 2014, I think, um, mm-hmm. that was, um, uh, you know, as, as it, was, it was part of a, a, a talk that I gave it, uh, you know, in, the, in that context. So it was also in a performance studies sort of context. I think, mm-hmm. I think things have really changed uh, again in the last year and a half. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, I, I, I don't see it as being, um, but but I also think that part of the answer to that question um, can be found both in panels essay um, and um, <laughs> and in in Harvey's essay in different in in, in 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 some really interesting ways. So so maybe maybe we want to shift it to the same. Maybe I'll turn this question over to you, panel, which is, you know, how do you see these? You know distinctions between performance uh, and theater as event, and the role of of documentation and record uh, as it as it appears for for you in in uh, in the work that you're presenting today. Wow! How dare you turn my question back on me um, <laughs> in in a, in a in a place where I can't shift and disco my way out of answering. Um, well, I think in this article, I, and, and I'll give a quick, a quick gloss response, and then I'll give a little bit of a, a summary of the article or, or narrative of the article. Um, I do think that theater 
being an older tradition, an older form, has accumulated prejudices, has accumulated sort of um, cognitive equipment and habits that spectators deploy. And that one of those habits we have is that it's theater because it's in this particular medium and it's special and it's designed to be experienced in certain ways and that perhaps the same prejudices are not as, you know, uh, calcified in the more dynamic, if I may say so, world of live art and performance art. Um, but um, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about my own work. I love to do it. This um, article is uh, th- I, this one. I, I asked you guys to read partly because it's one of my favorite things that I've written. Um, uh, it's a little. I think it's kind of a, a sleeper in in my CV. Um, but I have an unusual interest level of interest in in. Edmund Husserl. So one of my first, in fact, my first uh, publication in the JDTC 2004 was on uh, phenomenology. And I took a deep dive into Edmund Husserl, who's the, uh, you know, he's the continental philosopher considered to have created phenomenology as a sort of philosophical discipline. He was Heidegger's advisor, Heidegger sort of abandoned his project and made his own project. But it's true of, of Husserl that there's kind of a an all-star list of 20th century philosophers who wrote their dissertations on Husserl. Uh, Derrida is one of those. Um, Merleau-Ponty, uh, who's probably better known in our field, um, ob- also engaged very closely with Husserl. But Husserl's tough to read. Um, it's, you know, he wrote in German. If you're like me and you don't read German, you have to rely on translations. And so I had written about Edmund Husserl and some of the uh, read a lot of his key texts, but um, somewhere, some sometime about ten or fifteen years ago, uh, a new translation, uh, a new volume of Husserliana came out. So Husserl left behind tens of thousands of pages of notes that are slowly being translated, and a, a volume came out on his writings on fantasy, image consciousness, and memory, um, which span like eighteen eighty eight to nineteen twenty five. And I looked at this and found out that that Husserl wrote extensively about theater itself. And he wrote about theater in the context of other imitative arts, which he wrote about in turn in the context of other mental phenomena such as memory and fantasy. And so I was aware of this and I was like, okay, I have to write an article about this. I have to try to cover what Husserl writes about theater in these translated notes and present it to the field just as a resource. And then at some point along the line, um, I was talking to John Foley Sherman, one of the co-editors of the book that, that um, in which this was published. He, he edited this along with uh, Mikey Bleeker and Irini uh, Nettelkolopoulou. Um, uh, so, uh, or pardon me, Nettelkolopoulou. Um, and so I had the task and, and, you know, John said we're interested. So I had the task and I wrote this. And really my objective in it was just to try to cover the sort of dispersed thoughts and definite statements that Husserl makes about theater. Previously, I had argued that there's a kind of theatrical posture, theatrical attitude to the way that Husserl writes about his definitive philosophical idea, the epoche or the bracketing. Um, to me, this seems like a very sort of stagey way of understanding the way that the phenomenologist tries to 
analyze reality um, or analyze experience um, in a methodical way. And so here, I believe I've made a decent case that when you read what Husserl writes about theater consciousness, the consciousness of the spectator watching theater, and you compare it to the way he talks about phenomenological bracketing, that there are certain isomorphisms, that, that the sort of shape of the way he thinks about these two um, parts of his philosophy are pretty congruent. Um, and to me, this is very exciting, but I don't know. It's, it's one of these things that, as they say, has limited appeal um, in the field or beyond it. Um, so, so, so there you have it. There's the raison d'etre of this, of this article. Well, what I'll, do you guys think? I'll, I'll dive in. I, I, I appreciate uh, this article, which is The Stage Struck Out of the World, uh, Theatricality and Husserl's Phenomenology of Theater, 1905 to 1918. And a part of it is that I will admit that I'm one of those people who, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Merleau-Ponty phenomenology fanboy. <laughs> and, 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 and in some ways, the reason for that is because of of, I think, A, the style of writing in which Merleau-Ponty writes. I think also uh, it's more conversational, it's a bit more fluid, and and it's it's easier to engage with the original source material, right? So I think that's mm-hmm. that's 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 my attraction to it. Uh, but what I find really uh, exciting and eye-opening as I sort of wade, tiptoe, you know, get deeper <laughs> into Husserl's work here uh, through, through your writing is this idea of image consciousness, you know, th- this understanding about the subjectivity of the individual and that person's sort of outlook on the world and then this understanding that uh, the 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 image the assumptions the um, the, the the point of view that one has uh, sort of uh, requires some level of a negotiation uh, you know some so, some level of, a, of, 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 a, of awareness or a self-awareness you know that's in conversation with one's own perception of the space of the world in which you are uh, you know, which could stand apart from what someone else's experience is. You know, so I think that that could apply certainly to theater, uh, and how you introduce theater, I guess specifically within Husserl's writing, you know, as kind of a limit case, right? You know, it is, mm-hmm. it is sort of this uh, almost extreme end of the thing that you see that is, but also is not what it is. Um, um, you know, so I just find that kind of exciting, uh, but it is something I'm still working my way through. I, I will, I will say that. Uh, oh, it re- it rewards getting all the way through it. Have you gotten to the example? <laughs> thank you, thank you, Harvey. Honestly, it's 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 very flattering uh, to 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 hear you respond to my article in that way. Um, I don't know if you got to the part. There's a my favorite quote from this or from Husserl is the he makes this distinction between the way an actor interacts with a chair. He says, you know, an actor on stage will shift their weight and bend their knees and and sort of repose on a chair, but an actor does not take a seat that there's this he's trying to come up with these fine and precise distinctions between experience that is very hard to make any sort of categorical distinction between even when it's even when you're watching something that's packaged as a play right and that i think sort of it, it reminds me of heidegger's writing about the tool right that there's a a quality to the object that is staged that is distinct from the quality of the object that is unstaged and it has to do with the way we um, could phrase our use of it, you know? Um, but 
Yeah, and, and and Harvey, I'll say this about Merlo Ponty. If you want to find some extremely inaccessible Merlo Ponty, read The Visible and the Invisible and the passage on Chiasmus. Oh, I have. Which yes. Will, oh, okay, yes. good. So, okay, and even that you find more accessible than Husserl. Yes. Yes, I, I, I will say that. Uh, so, so, so John Foley Sherman, uh, who, yes. uh, you know, in this, this weird circle of these things, right? So, so John yes. was one of my dissertation advisees uh, yes. at, at Northwestern. You know, so thanks to John, John and I, uh, you know, we, we strode through, we walked through, we waded through, we swam through, we trudged through, <laughs> depending upon... Uh, the, yeah. the 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 source of the writing and also the source of some of the original texts, a, a, a lot of these works, and, and also in support of a book that he wrote, which is fantastic on um, uh, that Rutledge published called God, what's it called? Like the one stage presence. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a book on stage presence as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, that really work that that really does this work around um, uh, in, in, engaging uh, you know, thinkers beyond Merleau-Ponty, Husserl, and others. Uh, yeah, so it's just. You know, I, I appreciate this opportunity to revisit that. I will admit there was a little bit of trauma. There was a little bit of trauma attached to it because <laughs> when you work hard, you know, you know there are some wounds. <laughs> you know, it's that not, you, you it's take not on. It's not easy. It, it's not easy stuff, and yes. I don't know why I find it as rewarding as I do. But um, well, I, 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 I will I will join Harvey in in, in my appreciation for this, um, and and I will say I had to read it a few times um, and, and all I, c- I kept thinking is like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I have been reading too many spreadsheets and executive summaries. Like I have not <laughs> really gotten to dig into, because it's one thing when you read something, it's another thing when you read it and, and you know you have to talk about it, right? So it wasn't, it was like, the, like it had a certain performative, performance anxiety of like, oh, but it's, you know, this is also, uh, you know, like uh, attending a grad seminar, like on the air. So I also really, you know, felt like I had to, to do my due diligence. But I will say that I found um, greatest grad seminar ever. Um, the the com- the pairing of well, frankly, of of, of both of your essays um, with with this American wife to be um, to be really apt. And so I, I I read the essay and then I saw the show and then I read the essay again. And there's all kinds of wonderful ways in which it it begins to open up, uh, and by this I mean uh, this American Wife, the show begins to open up some of the ways in which we can think through um, what you're writing about Husserl. Um, and and I, I I'm just going to pull out a bunch of my favorite quotes. Right. So one is. Um, the idea, right, that um, uh, the purely perceptual figment of the play lacks belief, even when we are fully, fully immersed within it, quote, it lacks the characteristic of reality. And some yes. of the, I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, it was like, you know, if I were a meme creator, I would be like, is it drag or is it phenomenology, right? And then you could kind of, <laughs> right, um, right. you know, play, play alongside yeah. it. But I think the, you know, you have a number of places where you really push and kind of foreground this the this question and this tension of of the real versus the image versus the perception, um, and and the way that those are always kind of fluid within the context of the theater, moment to moment, um, as a time based medium and a time based form um, that I think actually yep. 
gives itself a really rewarding reading when you go back and kind of look at that through the context of you know being on Twitter uh, while watching uh, a, a live stream performance. Anyway, I thought it was. I thought it's it's it it seems at first I thought like oh it's so from the past, but in fact it is so deeply rooted in our contemporary moment in so many ways that I found I found it to be super rewarding. So thank you for that. I'm glad. I'm glad. I do. I. I. I, I think you're absolutely right. The the moments, the best moments for me in this American Wife were those moments when I felt like I was shifting out of what you know Husserl would call the sort of you know uh, image consciousness that's proper to the theater and other imitative arts, and then had this jarring feeling of oh no no no, this actor's talking about his own sexual history right now. I'm pretty sure he's talking about himself right now, and this is not. A character, right? That they they play with that distinction. Um, so yes, well, I'm I'm glad. I'm so glad it was rewarding, and I totally agree with you. All three of these articles had really interesting points of of commonality and and uh, and collision with the the piece we wrote. Um, Harvey, we read your article, co-authored with Bethany Hughes, um, "Reaffirmation of Life: Dramatic Theory and Race," published in the Journal of Dramatic Theory and Criticism in 2018. Um, so interesting. I I I have thoughts, but I want to hear you sort of explain how this piece came uh, came to be, and and sort of what your what your goal in writing it with uh, with Professor Hughes was. Yeah. So absolutely, I think that uh, so Beth and I Beth and I and I have had a number of conversations over the years about our respective work, uh, and there's been some overlaps, uh, and uh, this was really an opportunity for us to think about what we had in common, right? In terms of thinking about you know, how do we write about, how do we theorize, how do we you know, critically engage the topic of, of racialized experience? And, sort of, and what does it mean for us to be positioned as theater scholars uh, within a moment? So this is a 2018 article that was published in the journal Dramatic Theory and Criticism. Yeah, so what does it mean for us as, as theater scholars to be writing when a lot of that work was occurring within performance studies? Uh, and not wanting to say that the discipline of theater studies uh, and that the frame of dramatic criticism and dramatic theory you know, wasn't sufficiently capacious to handle those things. Because actually what we want to argue is to say that it's actually through the language of theater, it's through the theory of theater you know, that we can attend to ideas of embodiment, uh, to, persp- to perspectives and perceptions of the world. And, and let's not say that those insights are the province of some other discipline. Uh, even when they're kind of twin disciplines, right? So that became a way of us thinking about how do we think about performance theory and performance of race and identity and lived experience, you know, from a perspective that's gives and acknowledges the history of theater, right? So that's that's what prompted this this conversation, uh, and it was done purposely, uh, especially as I think I was working on yeah, I was I was working on a book back then, which is sadly I'm still working on that book, <laughs> you know, on 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 phenomenal blackness and ideas of, of black embodiment. And and Bethany is working on a book on on uh, representations and the experience of indigenous uh, first indigenous of First Nations um, individuals. Uh, so wanting to sort of actually put out in the world a way of thinking about those lived experiences from those different vantage points. Well, I, I, you know, I, I had read this previously um, and really appreciated the chance to, to go back to it. 
Um, I read it, um, and I also appreciate that I could. I felt like I could mostly get it in a in a couple of reads as opposed to panels, which took me a good three or, three or four <laughs> times and some looking up the footnotes. So so really grateful to you um, for that. I was also, um, you know. I, if we could sort of skip to questions, I mean, one of the things that I'd love to hear you talk about, because I think, you know, for some of us, we're we're not so careful. Um, so, and and by us, I'll just say me. Um, that you know, I think I think there's a real slippage between performance theory and dramatic theory, and uh, you know, it's so easy to just kind of be like theater at alia, right? And like you know, blah 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 blah. You know, the things that involve people doing things in front of other people, there's no medium, right? All those kinds of things. And so I'm I'm wondering, you know, as you kind of read back on this and thinking about uh, performances that have happened, you know, uh, recently, you know, where, where do you see drama? And 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 I really I really appreciated the the foregrounding of drama and dramatic theory and dramatic text and um, because I think I think we're at risk of alighting that and sort of just superseding it under a larger performance context or performance frame. And so, you know, so as you as you're sort of thinking beyond this and maybe what you're doing in the in the book that you're working on, you know, where 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 do you see the potential for drama and 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 the role of drama theory as we kind of separate these two things out? Yeah, I, I, to, to, to tell a bit of a story, you know. Uh, every so often, I go to the Harvard Bookstore uh, because it's not too far away, and I'm always intrigued by the you know sections on philosophy, the sections on theory, and what I noticed about I don't know five or six years ago, uh, and it hasn't changed. It just just it, there's just more books, <laughs> but, but 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 it hasn't changed. That uh, there's a way in which writings about uh, gendered experiences, racialized experiences, don't fall into philosophy or theory, mm. right? Mm. You know, they fall into the category of, of gender studies, performance studies. Um, and, and so what we've done as, a, as, a, as an academic field is that we've said that if you want to engage, um, you know, sort of conceptions and theories of embodiment that are indexed by gender, by race, um, that is performance studies. That is, uh, you, know, uh, you know, that is gender studies, and we've kind of by default uh, created um, a a sort of a whitened, you know, a a a heterosexist, you know, like you know, like a, a like a like a a, a very homogenous um, uh, sense of 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 what drama is, you know, and I and I worry about that because I, I worry that we run into this. Uh, larger framework, we start thinking about canons, you know, uh, uh, fields of, of and ways of thinking, you know, that then absence uh, those who want to write about gendered identity and racialized identity today. Um, and, you know, so the body within drama is a white male straight body, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the body in performance studies, you know, is, is, um, is a more ambiguous body, a, a racialized body, and 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 that is something that I want to I I want to I want to trouble, uh, and, and and that concerns me. And I think that also accounts for this thought that well, if you want to be inclusive, you write about performance because drama lacks the sort of capaciousness uh, to engage these this dialogue. 
you know, but 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 why can we not think of this American wife as the product of of people who graduated from a drama school, right? Um, and 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 can we think of this as an extension of dramaturgy, uh, of of an embodied of an embodied way of being? And 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 that's what I want us to 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 do. Um, and 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 that's and that's kind of what 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 drives this is is to to say. Let's not give up on the capacity, on the possibilities of dramatic theory. Let's actually hold on to it, um, you know, and and infuse it with the uh, the perspectives that are inherent in it that we are that we're just not acknowledging because we've said mm-hmm. that's performance studies, that's performance theory. It's not theater or drama. Yeah, I, I think it. One of the things I appreciated about this was that, and I think it's one of the reasons why it, it is important to as you and and Hughes do restate the importance of dramatic theory is that it's quite a long and varied intellectual tradition. And so if you want to know what W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about theater and black life, it's going to be in dramatic theater or dramatic theory, right? Because he's writing about theory. He did not know from this newfangled concept of performance. Um, and so I thought that was really great. I, I also picked up on uh, the way you talk about casting and it, it helped clarify something, an idea that I've been thinking about theater and its sort of relationship to social reality and abstraction and concreteness. Because you write early on that, um, uh, what, oh, now I'm going to lose the quote, um, something about abstraction. Oh, right, that, that both Locke and Du Bois um, uh, see theater as an opportunity to create a sort of portrait of abstracted or they, they, they differ on the ability of theater to present a portrait of abstracted beauty. They agree on the importance of staging black life in a kind of way that's concrete and true, right? That they want to show real black life, real black culture and experience. So there's this sort of idea of, a sort of older idea of drama as a mirror um, to life that these authors believe is is significant and, and, and good and important. And there's something about the, the combination or the shuttling between of uh, abstraction and concreteness in theater that I think is really important. On the one hand, theater is the sort of generates a lot of social abstractions, role, action, conflict, conflict. These are abstract ideas we get from theater. And there's also the way that it can frame and explain very difficult abstract problems. Like if you think about Ant- Antigone, you know, it's it's understood to be an explication of the conflict between absolute and and human written law, right? So there's all this abstraction in it, and yet it's always presented in a concrete way. So you, you know, the the, the representatives of the ideas in plays almost always have a have a proper name. It's this person. It's this life, right? And so August Wilson is, you know, depicting a panorama of of African American life, but it's about specific families and specific people, albeit you know fictional. Right. Um, and you, you, you and Hughes at the end sort of comment on casting as being this sort of unresolved or sort of continued problematic um, where, uh, you know, that to me was very clarifying because indeed the, the sort of most concrete aspects of theater, the individual bodies of the actors playing these roles, which in many cases represent bigger ideas, have to be understood and figured out and there has to be a way that we understand casting choices um, and this is I think is an ongoing issue in the field that we're going to have to land somewhere on right um, you know if, if it can't be the case that every actor 
directly embodies the life experience of every role they play, we have to have some sort of logic for figuring out how to do that. Um, and I know you weren't tackling that in this in this essay itself, but you gesture towards it, and I thought that was that was illuminating for me. Um, so thank you for that. I will say that I, I I'm a fan of co-authorship. Uh, I mm-hmm. I wrote. Gee, I, a long time ago. I guess it was a long time ago. It's all relative, but it must have been. It was in the before time. A decade or more ago. It was a it was a while ago. I, I wrote an essay on on um, on the importance of co-authorship. Right. I think that the the humanities and and theater in particular is is a little bit behind the times in in, in some ways, and that. Uh, we still think of the art, the article, the book that's by one person as as the be all and end all, uh, and 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 I do think if you look to the sciences, uh, the social sciences, and others, we we realize the, the the conversations that exist. So in that piece, I think I interviewed Joe Roach, right? And Joe was talking about you know the importance of 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 identifying and spotlighting these sort of nodal points of influence. Yeah, you know, the fact that your work is always in conversation with with these people, and, and what would it look like if, within, within our field, if we began to capture those conversations so that the ones you were uh, most in conversation with, you know, to the point where it was a, a, a true partnership, you, you co-author, and then the ones that you're kind of slightly in conversation with, that person becomes a third author or a fourth author, and, and, and can you imagine what that might look like? So we're sort of showing, uh, uh, you know, the networks of thought, you know, that exist within within our field. Um, and, and I think that that is something that I would like to see. Um, you know, and I, and I say this acknowledging the fact that, you know, we all have the privilege to do that work without it having any negative effect upon us career-wise, right? You know, so, uh, but my hope is that, you know, we can encourage folks out there to consider, you know, co-authorship and then to say that the co-authored article is an article. It's not half of an article for someone's promotion case, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, yeah. So that's 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 also one of my goals in terms of doing this sort of work as well is to try to shift the way we think about um, how scholarship lives in the world. Well, let's. Uh, this has been so pleasurable, and I feel like we should do a double episode um, and just talk about each other's work. Um, but we need to wrap. Th- we <laughs> need to wrap things up. Why there are uh, listeners? stats started to decline <laughs> no it'll be no this is going to be a record-breaking recording i can tell I can feel it. you can you can feel it when you're recording um but we need to move on to our drafts our our incomplete thoughts our musings our our projects our flights of fancy um uh sarah would you would you lead us off with your draft uh yes yeah, so my uh, my draft is um uh, probably less all of those things you just said panel and and more um, just how much I have been enjoying uh, Joshua Gelb's uh, theater in quarantine uh, series so early in the in the pandemic um, uh, Joshua is a, a performer director um, and all-around theater artist um, painted uh, the inside of one of his closets white and began using it as a as a as a stage, and he's been doing some really wonderful, you know, really imaginative video works, as well as speaking on on Harvey's point, uh, collaboration. So he did one called "The Sacred Face" with music from one of my favorite New York musicians, uh, Heather Christians, 
Um, and uh, most recently he did uh, a play by Karadets Fitch, uh, The Little Hours, as a two-person, so he did it with Culture Hub, so a, a two-person show with his own closet and a replica closet. I think it was also produced by La Mama. Um, and, and it's beautiful. It's just, it's, a, it's about 30 minutes. Um, it, it's, it's free on YouTube. Um, I highly recommend making a donation um, because I think it's such great work. And it's, it for me, and, and I mean, Switch's te text is, is like so much of her work, which I really love, is, is spare and, and eloquent and just feels always so timely. Um, but between the two performances um, happening in their boxes, right, which has a certain kind of Zoom echo, and also in reference to um, uh, you know homosexuality and and kind of queer relationships as uh, you know and and specifically in you know in downtown uh, New York and so there is a, a kind of you know closet drama pun intended like an epistemology of the closet drama that happens in these spaces but also then layered with video taken from from the pandemic so you'll see pictures of masks it for me it really captured so much of what the last year and a half of performance uh has felt like and the way it has penetrated all of our different ideas and and our sense of self in the world and and i just want to sort of as my final i'll just make a a quick quote um as a as a real thank you to everybody who worked on this on this show um, which is that towards the end, I think it's the last line of the show, somebody says, of course you can make a stage. You can make one anywhere. You just have to push, ev uh, you ha just have to push everything else away. It's amazing. And so if you're gonna take one, one great work out of uh, the last year and a half, and I think there's been a lot of great work in the last year and a half, for me, this, this was it. And so I, I highly recommend checking it out. That's great. I, I've seen a lot of references over the year to Gelb's work and, and, and theater in quarantine or theater in the pandemic, and I will check it out. Um, it seems like it's really excellent. Um, my draft uh, this episode is is about a project that I uh, got to participate in last week. And, and of course, if I had gotten the recording time of the podcast right, I would have been able to mention this before the fact so that people could check it out. But I um, I directed one of the monologues in the Gaza monologues, um, May 27th. This is a project that was organized by Samer Al-Saber of, of Stanford um, in coordination with the Ashtar Theater in Gaza, which originally produced this work in 2010 um, and it was a really special thing the the play is 31 monologues originally written by teenagers in Gaza about their experiences of living through the 2008-2009 uh, war in Gaza uh, in which as many as 1400 Palestinians and 13 Israelis died um, and so Summer found 31 directors at 31 different schools. We each found an actor, um, uh, in, in most cases, a, an undergraduate student actor, and divvied up the monologues and just read them. Um, I think we, you know, uh, we rehearsed for about an hour and just read 
um, these monologues in a sort of simple, straightforward way. Um, and it was a special thing. You know, it, 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 we've, we've experienced a lot of um, theater over in the course of the pandemic over Zoom, and this one had a sort of special quality to it because of the reach of it. Um, and so I just wanted to give a, a tip of the hat to, to Summer um, for pulling that off. And um, I don't think a recording of it is available. I think it is ephemera. Um, but uh, this play gets produced from time to time, and, and listeners should check it out. Um, Harvey, what yes. have you got for uh, us? So I, I have two two quick things. The first is uh, next week is, well, not, who knows when you're going to access this, but let's say the, the, the second week of June <laughs> you know, uh, is the uh, Canadian Association for Theatre Research Conference, and I gave the keynote address for that. Um, I said gave in the past tense because uh, actually I recorded it, but I will be there live uh, for it for the Q&A. And just so you know, for everyone who wants to check it out, it's free. It's a free conference. Uh, so I encourage you to, uh, to, 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 to pop in virtually uh, to the various sessions. Uh, it seems like a great lineup. Uh, and the second and kind of more core draft is I'm trying to figure out what's the live performance that I want to see when things reopen. Uh, I, I unfortunately have kind of realized that I've been really content with rediscovering the power of cinema uh, and and TV episodes and Twitter theater, right? Um, and these recorded, mediated uh, 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 activities, like you know, or events such as like this American Wife. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out like what is the thing that I want to see that's live, that's not mediated um, in a in a sort of virtual sense uh, that is going to, I don't know, like. Awaken, reactivate, you know, uh, recharge, uh, uh, bring back, you know, give breath back to the, you know, the, the power of live drama, live theater for me, you know. So I'm just looking for recommendations for what what is that purely in person live event that I just have, I have to see, uh, and I don't know what it is, and it, it and I can think of concerts I want to go see, you know, like, uh, but I can't think of of theater just yet. So I'm I'm in search for recommendations. That's great. Maybe we can, I'll, I'll post this question in the um, podcast's Twitter feed, and we'll see if we can't get some responses going on. Well, here's, yes, and I'm sure there's great uh, things happening in, over over in Canada, but I can't get into I can't I can't enter the country. Well, I, I don't know that <laughs> you know. things are going to be happening here faster than they. We, we're we're a bit behind in our reopening plan, but I will simply say my answer to that question is the first thing available. <laughs> like I don't care, you know, like you know like new Bob Wilson or Charlie's aunt. It's like, sign me up. Like I'm, I'm, I'm right there. Like, you know, I'm just wait, like the spitting play. I'm like, okay, vaccinated. Here we go. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, well, that's great. Sarah Harvey, always a pleasure to record with you. It's been a while. I, I like the new format of the podcast. I love our new co-hosts, but it's great to be back in the in the digital huddle with you again. Um, uh, listeners, we will take a summer hiatus and we will be um, back with you with some more um, audio as things start up again in, I don't know, August, September. We'll, we'll figure it out. We got a special, um, our 50th episode coming up. Yeah, we should do something special. And maybe, who knows, we can do a live recording in the next year. That would be exciting. Um, but thank you both, Sarah Harvey. Uh, thank you, listeners. And we'll have uh, more podcast for you at the end of the summer. 
On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department of Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. Our associate producer is Carly Kessler. Our intro music is by Septahelix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com, contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ontappodcast. 